Last week, the story left off with Jacob, Isaac's son, being sent away to his extended family that lived about a thousand miles away. I don't know if you remember that, but there was all the family drama that they had gone through, and, and uh, not only had Jacob already ripped off his brother from the birthright many weeks earlier, but now we see that he also got the blessing. You remember this story? And he does it by taking advantage of his poor old blind dad, who couldn't see to tell the difference between the two sons. And he talked to Esau, and Isaac told Esau, look, I want you to go out into the field and, and bring this, this uh, meal to me, and I'm going to bless you. And Rebecca, um, Isaac's wife, Jacob and Esau's mom, she hears what's going on, and she decides to intervene. She calls in her conniving son, Jacob. They come together, and they brew this plan up to ultimately push Esau even out of the blessing. And it happens, and it takes place. And so through all that, um, Esau, now being ripped off twice by his, his younger brother, has decided, I'm going to kill this guy. And I don't mean that figuratively. I am literally going to take his life. But, he says, but I'm not going to do it while my poor old dad is still living. Because I'm afraid it'd break his heart. So I'm going to wait until my dad goes ahead and moves on. And I'm going to then kill my brother. And once their mom, Rebecca, finds out about that, remember what she says is, okay, this is a problem. I mean, I've got my favorite son. I've got the, the things that I want for him in his life. But it's not okay if I let my other son now murder the son that I love, who's my favorite. And so in all of this, she comes up with a plan. Well, let's just send him away. Let's get him as far as possible away from the rest of the family so that maybe the anger of Esau will cool and he will let Jacob live. And so that's what happens. They end up kind of manipulating Isaac once again and, and, and Isaac ultimately sends Jacob away. He essentially exiles him from the family because what he says is, I want you to go back to the land of our ancestors which is about a thousand miles away across the desert. And I want you to go and find a wife and establish yourself out there. And so that's what happens. And Jacob begins on this journey, this long journey, which probably would have felt even longer as Jacob has kind of got all of this time to process what's happened in his family. Everything Jacob knew is now being left behind. He's now on a mule, a horse, probably not even a horse, maybe a camel, and he's wandering through this wilderness zone day after day after day, thinking about all that had happened. Not only with um, all of that other stuff, that the guilt on weighing on his shoulders, uh, we saw one more thing last week, that even when Jacob was sent out by Isaac to go out there, the last thing that Isaac did, instead of just saying, look, you're a lousy son, I can't believe you did this, just get out of my sight, it wasn't any of that. In fact, what we saw with Isaac, and this would have been kind of just heavier on Jacob, I think, what he says was, he says, hey, as you go, may God bless you. 
May God restore everything that he wants to restore to you. May he give you all the blessing that he gave to Abraham and to me. May you just go out and and prosper. Can you imagine? Here you've just done all of this underhanded, devious stuff. You've ripped off your own dad, your own brother. And now that's how your dad sends you out. I, I, I think he would have probably actually liked it a little better if he's like, yeah, I got what I deserved. You know, my dad cussed at me and kicked me out of the house. <laughs> but it wasn't that way. Instead, he just blesses him on his way out. So Jacob's going through with this on uh, this weight of regret and shame, which especially makes the next events that we're about to read here so surprising. So here we are in Genesis chapter 28, and we start in verse 10. And here's what it says. It says, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. That's the, the place where, where Abraham had once been. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, And you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. So this was no ordinary dream. All right, Jacob is leaving, kind of head hung, sad about what's going on, trying to figure this all out. He's out in the wilderness somewhere, just in the middle of nowhere. The sun sets. He's like, I don't want to go any farther in the dark. I'm going to lay down here and sleep for the night and then get up in the morning and head on this long journey. And, but he has this dream, but not an ordinary dream. This is a God-given dream with a God-given message. Jacob had to flee his house But now we see he kind of stumbles upon what he calls God's house. God announced to Jacob that he would be the one to carry God's blessing. Now, I don't think this is what Jacob was expecting. In fact, feeling like Jacob felt about the things that he had been doing recently in his life, an appearance from God at that point would have probably not been something that he was looking forward to. He wouldn't have been thinking, oh, I can't wait till God shows up and has something to say to me. Because I would have thought, if I had been Jacob, I would have seen God and been like, it's done. I'm, that's, this is what happens. The lightning's about to strike, and I'm finished. I mean, I thought I was a scumbag, but 
God obviously knows that I really am. But that's not what happens. Instead, what we see is God saying, you are going to be the one that carries my blessing. And even though this might be the lowest point of Jacob's life, God didn't address any of those things. None of it. None of it at all. Jacob didn't deserve this blessing. Okay? I think we can agree on that. Jacob did not deserve this blessing. He didn't. He was self-centered. He was conniving. He was deceitful. He was a cheat. Yet God chose to pour out this full cup of blessing on his head. The same blessing that he said he was going to pour out on righteous father Abraham. The, the same blessing that was, was promised to this man full of faith is now going to be promised to this kind of sketchy guy. The same blessing that was passed on to his father, Isaac, that is the blessing that would be given to Jacob. What had Jacob done to deserve this? Nothing. Did God see something remarkable about Jacob? Did he see some deep, dormant faith that could be awakened? Did he sense some sort of potential that we can't see? I think the answer is no. It had nothing to do with Jacob and Jacob's potential or Jacob's goodness or Jacob, oh, he really has a heart of gold buried underneath that, you know, scumbag exterior. <laughs> no, I don't think it was anything of that. It was purely by God's grace. All right? It was by God's grace. Grace, a simple definition of grace, is God's unmerited favor unmerited favor. That means you don't earn it. You don't work for it. You don't buy it somewhere. You don't acquire it somehow. It's not inherited. It's unmerited. There's no reason that you get it. And it's the favor of God. And that's what we see happen here. When God appears to Jacob, he doesn't deal with all the other stuff of Jacob. He just says, I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to really bless you. In fact, all of the families of earth are going to be blessed through you. And I'm choosing to bless you. Now, grace is an important term in the Bible to understand. All right? It's good that you have a definition to know what it is. And, and you're going to see it all through Scripture. When we get into the New Testament and we study Paul and all the letters of Paul, you just hear grace, grace, grace all through it. Okay? It's an important term to understand, but it's far more important to experience Okay, I want you to know what grace is and what grace is supposed to do and where it comes from, but it's so much more important that as a Christian, you experience grace in your life. Grace doesn't make sense. I, I said something to um, you several weeks ago. I don't even remember what message it was, um, but when I said it, I loved it had the the. the the perfect impact that I was looking for. Sometimes as a speaker, when you're talking to people and you say something that you think, oh, this is really gonna, it's gonna move them, right? And then you say it and then they're looking at you like, really? That's about all you got? And you're like, oh, it didn't work. But this one worked. And the thing that I said was, I, I said to you all, God's not fair. And for many of you, I got this immediate response of, hold, did I just hear him right? Did he say God's not fair? 
we're talking about God here, the righteous God. You're telling me he's not fair? And I love that. I love that. So thank you for those of you who frowned at me at that point. Because what I meant and what is true is that God is not fair. And one of the most obvious places that we see that God's not fair, now God is righteous and God is just and God is perfect and God is holy, but God's not fair because if God was fair, there would be no grace. Because grace is giving people something that they don't deserve, something that they haven't earned, something that it shouldn't be given to them. That's what God does, and it's not fair. It was not fair that Jesus would die on the cross for us. He didn't do anything to deserve it. We did. It's not fair that the sin of the world was poured onto Jesus. But instead, what we see in Scripture is not only does he, he accept that and absorb that, the Bible tells us that Jesus did that for us with joy. It wasn't that God the Father was just beating up on Jesus. Jesus said, I want to take on the sins of the world for them. And it's with joy that I go to the cross because I know the life that can come from it for all these people. God's not fair. Thank you, Father, that you're not fair. We don't deserve the blessings that we're given. We don't deserve eternal life. We don't deserve his grace, but he offers it to us with joy. Now, here's the thing about grace. Because that's so just outlandish, like why would he give me grace? For many people, grace is actually really hard for us to receive. It's hard for us to accept something. In fact, for many of us, we would much rather have earned it. We would much rather think, I'd rather work hard for what I have. I'd rather do what I have to do so that God will love me. Because then I feel like it's kind of like this, this relationship where I'm in it and he's in it and we work together in it. And so we almost say, well, no, Lord, you don't have to pour out that much grace on me. Save that for the real sinners. You know, the, the real lowlifes of the world. Not me. I, I'm going to work hard and I'm going to do right. And I'm going to say the right things and talk to the right people. And I'm going to read my Bible and I'm going to pray and I'm going to get myself to heaven. Guys, it doesn't work that way. We cannot earn salvation for ourselves. It has to be a gift that's given to us. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, one of the most well-known verses in the whole Bible. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Why is it set up this way? It's set up this way so that God is the one who receives all the glory. He's the one who gets all the honor. It's not that you were such a good person that you made it to heaven. Whoa, we should praise your name. No, it's that he has done all of it. And he is the one that receives the glory and the, and the honor. And when we come to the holiness of God, what happens is we are like the prophet Isaiah when he saw the Lord. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah says, Woe is me, I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. I'm a sinner. When we're confronted with the holiness and perfection of God, we realize I'm a mess in comparison to God. I may be better than my friends, better than my family. I may be more godly than the kid at school or my coworker. But when we compare ourselves to Jesus we realize, okay, we don't have a 
a prayer. We don't have a hope if we're trying to get our, our, our own salvation on our own. But God knows this. God knows who we are. He sees us and he knows us better than we do and he still chooses to lavish grace upon us. Doesn't that make you want to shout thank you, God? (laughs) Right? Thank you, Lord. Doesn't that change your view of the world when you start experiencing that grace where you realize, wow, he loved me first anyway, even as a sinner, Christ died for us. It should change our view of the world and the people in the world. It should make us want to forgive the sins of others because our sins have been forgiven. It should make us want to extend grace even to those who mistreat us. It should make us want to love those that aren't worthy of love because we understand that that's where God has found us. That's where he poured out grace on us. Now, So far, to this point in the story of Genesis, we have not seen a shred of faith in Jacob. Up to this point, nothing. Um, The only time he even indirectly referred to God was when he was lying to his dad and saying, when, when Isaac asked him, hey, how'd you come up with this food so fast? Jacob lied and referred to God and said, well, you know, God blessed me so I could go out into the field and bring this in, right? Because it was supposed to be going out there and hunting this game, which was a lie. That's the only time we even see him referring to God so far. So from what we can tell, there was no spiritual sensitivity in Jacob. There was no desire for God, no curiosity about the promises of God, only a desire to get ahead by any means necessary. That's who Jacob was. But God is going to change all that because God changes people. God changes people. Now, when you think about this whole experience, he lays down, he has this dream. Um, I'll tell you, I wish that we would all dream dreams and have visions and all that. When you read the Bible and you see these kinds of things, don't you ever feel that way? You're like, man, I wish that's how God would speak to me. It'd be so much easier if I just, you know, I walk out of the house one day and boom, here's an angel. And the angel says, today you're going to do this and that. Go here, don't say this, make sure you say that. Talk to this person, don't talk to that person. Wouldn't that be great? When you've got a big decision coming up, you're like, Lord, what do I need to do? And the Lord's like, don't worry, my child. Go to sleep and I'll speak to you in a dream. <laughs> and then at night, he's like, this is what you do without account. Sell this, trade that, do this, move this, you know. Lord, where do I go to school? Oh, no problem, you know? That would be awesome. But God's way is better than my way. And by faith, I believe that God doesn't appear to us in all of these ways, and that that is the best way, all right? And I also hang that on a particular passage in the scriptures. Um, Jesus, after he had died and rose again, and it appeared to his disciples, the 12, um, the first time he appeared to these disciples, one of them, Thomas, was not with the rest of the disciples, all right? And so Jesus appears to the disciples, he's risen again, and their minds are blown, and he's with them, and he's talking with them. They have this vision, this experience with Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. They're like, they're, he, it's not a, he's not a ghost, he's a person, they can touch him, and he can talk, and he's eating with them. And then he goes away. 
Well, then when Thomas comes back in, all the disciples are like, Thomas, Jesus showed up and he was here and and it was amazing. And Thomas is like, look, I don't care what any of you jerks have to say. (laughs) Unless I see him with my own eyes, unless I put my hands in the the nail prints that we saw in his wrists and hands, like, unless I see it with my own eyes, you're all full of it, right? But what happens next? Jesus appears, and this time Thomas is there, and immediately Thomas melts, and he's like, my Lord, my God. But Jesus says something very interesting to Thomas right there. Here's what he says. It's in John 20, verse 29. Jesus said to him, have you believed Because you have seen me. And listen to what Jesus goes on and says. He says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, I don't know what that particular blessing is. But I trust that when Jesus says there's a blessing in it, there's a blessing in it. I still wish he would show up to me in dreams and visions. But I trust that God says, hey, if you can believe without seeing, there's a blessing involved in that. So we trust that his ways are the best. Now, you might say that this whole experience was a wake-up call for Jacob. I think sleeping on rocks might have that effect on any of us. Um, I don't know. It's a different time, but you you bring a rock up, you set it down, and that's your pillow. (laughs) I can't imagine he had a very good night's rest. But what happens is, what it, it did a, a, a massive shift in Jacob's heart because this event was enough to convince Jacob of God's reality and God's plan, all right? But just like all people of faith, this was going to be a lifelong journey of transformation for Jacob. I think for a lot of people, we think that if we could only have some supernatural experience, it would change me forever. If I could have that vision, if I could dream that dream, if I could have God appear to me, then from then on, I'd be able to walk the straight and narrow. From then on, I'd never, you know, sin in any way. It would break all the addictions in my life. It would reorient my, my entire life plan. But guys, that's not what we see in the Bible. It's not what we see in people who are being changed and transformed by God. Instead, what we see is we see a lifelong journey of transformation. Jacob wasn't magically transformed from this cheater, rip-off con artist to all of a sudden becoming this incredible saint of God. That's not what happened. As we're going to see going through more of his life in the coming chapters, he's on a, he's on a, a path of, of, of transformation, And you are on a journey also. Each one of us is in a different place in our lives. I've been married to my lovely wife over here for 22 years. And for, yeah, that's pretty good. 22 years. It's not like it's our anniversary or anything. I'm just saying. It's been 22 years. That's a long time. And in those 22 years, I've been by her side almost daily for most of those days for the past 22 years. And in those 22 years, I have seen God work and move in her life in, in certain ways, in certain areas, that he hasn't even started with me yet. Now, I'm a lot more of a mess than she is, so I've got a long way to go. But it's the same way the other way around, too. There are certain things that God has worked in my life that he hasn't addressed yet in her life. And there's those things that happen because we're both on a journey. 
We're both pursuing God. We're both trying to figure out what's happening in this life. We're both being transformed. And each one of us have a unique path and a unique journey. And every one of you who have put your faith in Jesus as your Savior, I need you to know from the beginning, look, you're a full-fledged member of the family of God. When you ask Jesus to come into your life and, and to become a Christian, you're a Christian. All right? We're all equal at that space. We're all forgiven in the same way. But we're all still incomplete. We all still strum, stumble and struggle, and sometimes we fall down. Um, at last week, as we were cleaning up in here, um, I think, I think it was actually one of Albert and Vanessa's kids. Um, he, he came running through here. He was a little guy, a little toddler guy. He came, he came running through here, and he's ate it, like face first, you know? And he's small. Now, if, if, if he was laying there on the carpet, and he just looked over at us, and is like, that's it. I quit. I'm done with this. This whole running thing. I mean, I've been working on it for a little while. I had big plans to, you know, play for the Padres one day, but this is what I get. <laughs> you know, no, no. If, if that's the case, we're like, no, no, no. You, you got to get up and keep going here. This is, you're just, you're just getting this. You're just growing into this body. You're still learning what's happening, right? It's the same way sometimes with Christians. We're like, why, how? Like, I gave my life to Jesus. Why am I not walking in all this victory and all this glory? Why am I not seeing miracles and laying hands and healing people? Why am I not walking on water yet? Because there's a process. Because there's growth. Because there's a whole life in front of you to lead. God's got you on a journey. Don't be ashamed of the process. We're all in this process. And we're all meant to be here for each other. Don't worry if you don't yet know all that the Bible has to teach you. Don't worry if you don't know how to pray eloquently yet or, or how to convince non-believers with all these theological arguments of the existence of God. All right? We're all on a path. We're all growing. We're all moving forward. And we just have to keep walking with God and watch what the Spirit of God can do in us. Jacob's life with God was just beginning. And I want you to notice that it started from a place of awe and wonder. In verse 16 and 17, he said there, surely the Lord is in this place, and I didn't know it. How awesome is this place? And for many of us, we've been attending church uh, for most of our lives, and we can become numb to the fact that God is among us. We can even take it for granted sometimes that we've been saved. I'm guilty of it. We can come to church. We can, you know, shove our hands in our pockets, mumble along with the songs of worship, scroll through the pages of the Bible, grab a cup of coffee on the way out, chat to a couple friends, go home. It's like, eh, another Sunday morning. Eh, big deal, big deal. And we can forget who we're actually coming to worship. We can forget who is here to meet with us in this place. And guys, that's on Sunday. That's the day we're setting aside for worship. What about during the other days of the week when we're going full speed at work or school or, and just in life? 
Can we rediscover a passion for the things of God? I think we can. I think we can return to a place of awe and wonder. Historically, the church has called these sorts of changes revivals. Um, And a revival is simply an old term for a place where God revives people's souls, right? He wakes us up again to the truth of who he is and the glory of who he is. Um, Many times it happens when people gather together and just ask God to do it and just say, Lord, we feel kind of stale. We feel kind of cold. Will you revive our hearts? Will you reveal yourself to us in a way that allows us to wake up again? Some of you may have seen in the news recently that there's a, a revival happening right now in a, a college in Kentucky. And um, my, my dad, um, one of his close friends and former students is a professor at this college. And my dad had called him and was talking to him about it, what was going on. And, and I, I thought it was interesting. Um, I was hoping that that conversation, that the professor would be like, oh, it's amazing. Everything about it's just awesome. It's just perfect all the way through. But, but actually what he said was, he said, you know, it was a really cool thing at first. Because at first it was just some of these college kids that really wanted to seek God. And it was small little groups of people getting together and praying for each other and confessing their sins. And God just doing a really radical thing. And it's a real legitimate, clean, clear experience of, of the move of God in people's lives. Tons of kids getting saved and, and rededicating um, their lives to the Lord. It was beautiful. Unfortunately, when word started getting out that it happened, it kind of got twisted a little because now you've got all these people coming by the busload because they want to get pictures of themselves on social media that they went to the revival. So they're showing up with their, their, their phones and the you know, selfies in the worship services and all these kinds of things to try to say, I was there, I was at the revival. Okay, whatever. Maybe, maybe God will still do some things there too. <laughs> But the, the point of this the, the, that I'm trying to get, I know that um, these big moves that happen can make headlines, and I'm not concerned about headlines. What I am concerned about is that we would experience the fullness of God in our lives. Not so that we get on the news or that people find out about our church, ooh, South Point, the South Point revival. No, like who cares about that stuff? But the part that we should care about is that we are experiencing the fullness of God in our lives, that we wake up to the reality of God in our lives. And so you may want to ask yourself today, hey, do I need to be revived in some way? Uh, One of the verses that I quote all the time, John 10, 10, Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. An abundant life is one that's full of God. An abundant life is not found in your bank account. It's not found in recognition at work. It's not found in a significant other or the lack of a significant other. It's not found in world travel or thrilling experiences. An abundant life is found in God. And the Lord is in this place and we often don't know it. Let's go on and read the the last section here today in Genesis 28 verse 18. And it says, so early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go 
and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. So this place of awe and wonder led Jacob to action. Okay, three actions we'll look at here that are in the text for us. Um, Now, I, I will say this. Oil was used in ancient times for many purposes. One of the things was to mark something as sacred. All right, so if you're wondering, what was this all about? He takes this rock that he'd used for a pillow, he sets it up and he pours oil on it. Um, this was one of the things that they did in this time. It was like, this is this sacred thing and I want to anoint this thing uh, with oil. Later in scripture, we'll see people being anointed with oil when they're set apart for a particular role, like a king or a a prophet. But Jacob wanted to commemorate and acknowledge this exact place. So really, as he's doing this, as he's setting this, this rock up and he's pouring oil on it, it's an act of worship. The first action that we see from this place of awe and wonder that God is here, God is in this place, the first action that we see from Jacob is we see worship. He worships in this way. Now, it's kind of silly to think he sets up a rock and says this is the house of God uh, to us, especially when you know Isaiah 66, 1 and 2 says, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What's the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But what it represented to Jacob wasn't silly at all. What he was representing here with this rock, this wilderness dirt, this common stone, was now holy ground for Jacob. That's what was going on. That's why he wanted to worship here. That's why he did this action Because he wanted to say, this was a holy place. God showed up here. I met God. And I want to remember that. He calls the place Beth El. Beth means house. All right. El is a a common term for God. So Bethlehem, if you know that from the Bible, um, where Jesus is born, that's actually the house, Beth of bread, house of bread. We'll get into that at a different time. But this is Beth El, house of God. Worship is the natural response of people who encounter the living God. It's natural. That's what happens. If you encounter God, you worship. It takes different forms for different people. And it's, a, it's critical, it's a critical way for us to interact with God. Our prayer for our church, one of the values we hold as a church, is that we would be a group of Jesus followers that immerse ourselves in worship. What do we mean when we say that? That we would bring our entire selves to God when we worship. Not that we would come to church and watch other people worship, not that we would come and, and, and take part in a program or a show. That's not what we're trying to do here. What we want to do when we gather together to worship is we want all of ourselves, each one of us, to participate in worship, to connect in worship, connect with God, bring our entire selves, body, soul, mind, and strength. That's what he's doing here. He's, he's moving in a way, uh, an action toward God. He's worshiping God. 
The second thing that we see him do after he worships is he vowed, he made a vow. He says there in verse 21, the Lord shall be my God. And I want to point this out to you if you didn't know this already. Anytime in your Bibles that you see the word Lord, like you do here in verse 21, in all caps, what that means, it's, it's actually translating the Hebrew word Yahweh, all right, which is the, the specific name of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all right? That God, it's, it's God's name. It's the God, God gave them this name. This is who I am, Yahweh. Um, to distinguish from all the other, you know, gods that, that people would worship. So anytime you see that, you know it's Yahweh. And that's what he's saying. He says, Yahweh will be my God. At this point in Jacob's life, he had no God or he had some other gods that he worshiped. But what he's saying here, after worshiping, after experiencing God, he says, that God, Yahweh, will be my God. The same God of my grandfather Abraham and my father Isaac. So Jacob was committing to align himself with Yahweh. And that ceremony was a way to physically memorialize the decision. Now, I will say this. You might ask the question like I did when you're reading this. You might be like, well, what's he saying when he says, if God will be with me and if God will do this? Now, um, maybe this was still scheming Jacob, trying to make a bargain with God. Maybe he's saying, well, okay, God, well, if you actually do these things, then I'll make you my God. Could be. But if we give him a benefit of the doubt, what he could also be saying is, well, okay, if you're going to do that, then I will do this. Um, I don't know. Um, We'll have to see when we get to heaven and talk to Jacob of, of what he was feeling like at that point. But the point in this is that each one of us have to make that decision for ourselves. Jacob, for the first time, is making a decision, I am going to be one who follows God. As much as I want my daughters to choose to follow God, it's still up to them. As much as you may have that relative, that friend, the coworker that you want to see come to Christ, you can pray and pray and pray for them, and I think you should, because I think prayer matters. But ultimately, it comes down to their own choice. Every one of us has to make a choice to choose God and to follow him. It's by faith that we're saved. The third thing and the final thing that we see as we start to wrap up here is we see there in verse 22, an interesting thing here, that Jacob tithed. Um, Jacob committed to give a tenth of everything that he would receive back to God. And, and a tithe literally just means tenth. It's a, a recognition that everything we have comes from God and that we don't worship the gifts that he gives us, but we worship the giver himself. Uh, if you have more questions about tithing, um, last fall we did a, a message in our spiritual practices series that talked about worship through giving, and we went in detail um, on that. It might surprise some of you, though, that Christians still tithe today. Um, some people say, well, we don't have to do that anymore because we're New Testament Christians and the Old Testament was part of the, or the tithing was part of the Old Testament law. And Paul says we're no longer under the law. Um, And I've heard those arguments. But here's a question for you. Where is the law for Jacob? There is no law yet. The law is not coming to Moses for another 500 years. (laughs) 
and he's still tithing. <laughs> he still moved to tithe um, 500 years before the law shows up. And it is true that Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets. And, and as Paul wrote, we're no longer slaves to that law. But it's also true that we're still humans. And guess what? Humans still struggle with the same self-centeredness and greed um, that they've always struggled with. And money is one of the common things that wants to steal our hearts from worship, from true worship. And the best way to break the grip of money in your life is by learning to give it generously as an act of worship. I believe that we have a very real biblical precedent for tithing 10% as a baseline for our giving. I think every Christian should aim for at least that. But guys, that's between you and God. <laughs> that's, that's between you and God. It wasn't a law that motivated Jacob. He offered it as an act of worship. And that's what tithing is supposed to be, an act of faith and an act of worship. Side note, I don't know who tithes um, at our church unless you've told me. <laughs> um, of, I don't know what people give unless you've told me that. Um, so if you thought I was looking at you when we were talking about this tithing thing, that's your own conscience. <laughs> or maybe God convicting you, but it's not me. I don't know. No, the big takeaway though, as we wrap up, we finish here today, the big takeaway this morning is that Jacob was transformed by God's grace. That's, I think, the thing that we see when you look at this entire event. Jacob, who was, went to sleep that night as one type of a guy, woke up the next morning and his life changed. And he was transformed by this initial work of grace that God was doing in his life. And that process, that transformation by grace is the same transformation that every one of us can and should experience. The transformation wasn't just external to Jacob, it was internal. This was a heart change. This was a way of viewing the world. It changed. Who he was as a person, was he was being changed on the inside. And when we experience God's grace, it moves us then, just as it moved him, to action. It moves us to action. It changes who we are, how we live. And this is what happens when we show up to God's house. When we get with God, when we interact with God. So here's the question for you. Do you need a change in your life today? If you need to be changed, the place you need to go for change is to God. You need to ask him for an extra dose of grace. You need to ask him to change the way you're seeing the world. And I don't know, maybe he'll give you a dream or a vision, appear to you. He might not. Because he's already, through his word, told you what has to take place in your heart and your life. Jacob didn't know any of this. Jacob didn't have a Bible. The Bible wasn't written yet. But we do, we have it. And we know that there is a transforming power through Jesus Christ our Lord if we would come to him and experience his grace and allow him to transform us. And I, I do want to, as I finish here in prayer, I do also want to encourage you this week to reflect on the, the life group questions, even if you're not part of a life group or you can't make it this week. Um, to, to find the life group questions, you can just go on the Church Center app and click sermon notes. And at the bottom of those, there's some questions. And I think this is a good week for us to, to process these things on our own, to think through and say, you know, what, 
what can I do, Lord, to experience your grace and your transformation? And um, it's always a good exercise to do as you go throughout your week. Well, let's pray together. Father God, I do thank you for this passage of scripture. And I thank you, Lord, for the work that you did in Jacob's life. And I'm especially thankful this morning, Lord, because I see how we too are in need of grace. Just as Jacob needed grace, we need grace, Lord. And so God, we pray today that you would pour out your grace on us. I don't pretend to know what everyone in this church needs. I don't know all of the the things that they're thinking about, things that they're going through in their lives. But no matter where they are, Lord, I do know that they are in need of grace. And one of the most beautiful things about grace is that you teach us and you've told us that your grace never runs out. And that you desire to pour out grace on each and every one of us. We need your transforming power in our lives. And we ask God that you would do it among us here today. Have your way in our lives, Lord, we pray.